Prudential. Impact Live for every life, for every future. Hello and welcome back to Impact Live, a look at Prue's sustainability strategy from teams and from guest speakers right across the globe. Next up, we have Rajiv Peshwaria. Now, Rajiv is a thought leader, a speaker, and an author of numerous books, including Open Source Leadership and Too Many Bosses, Too Few Leaders. But he's also the CEO of Stewardship Asia, which we're going to find out a little bit more about. So, uh, Rajiv, welcome. Please tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Okay, very good. Uh, thank you. Uh, so, I uh, head up a Stewardship Asia Center here in Singapore. It is a nonprofit think tank established by Tomasek under the umbrella of Tomasek Trust. And we basically research, educate, and inform on what we call stewardship, which is an umbrella term for what people call ESG, what people call sustainability, environmental and social. In other words, we research businesses doing well by doing good. Okay, so what are the key trends in economy, in society, in 2023, that you think will shape the way that organizations do business moving forward? You know, as I see it, we, we live in times of existential challenges. And if you ask me what are the three biggest existential challenges of our times, climate change uh, is one. Socioeconomic inequality is the second. And cyber vulnerability being the third. And by cyber vulnerability, I mean any kind of threat that technology's misuse sort of poses to humanity. So whether it's AI, whether it's any other technology, when it is misused, it can cause devastation. So climate change, socioeconomic inequality, and cyber vulnerability are the three challenges that define the 21st century. And there is one other mega trend that I think people forget, and that is that all of us, individually and organizationally, are naked in today's society. Thanks to connectivity, anything we do or don't do is in full public view these days. That's really interesting. And I think the first two things that you mentioned there around climate change and around social and economic vulnerability, those two things are clearly interconnected. That third notion of the potential threat of technology, of AI, and that nakedness you mentioned, they seem connected as well, i.e. we're totally in the thrall of technology. Absolutely. Connectivity is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it gives us immense power. It places immense empowerment in the hands of ordinary people. On the other hand, it makes everybody naked. Okay, so a corporation like Prudential, what's their role? Clearly, it's not enough purely to be a generator of profit. There's more to an organization than that. How do you see the role of a corporation in 2023? So I think given these existential challenges, the challenge, the business leadership and governance challenge of the 21st century is to create superior shareholder returns by addressing the very challenges that are threatening humanity today. So the three things that I mentioned, anybody that can put a finger and find profitable solutions to today's most pressing problems is going to generate enormous amounts of wealth. So we are not against profit. I think corporations exist to make money as absolutely all right. But the challenge is, can you find innovation enough to drive superior shareholder returns by addressing the very challenges that are threatening us today? Are there any examples that stand out of organizations that do that well? Can you give us a, a good practice? Oh, many. Uh, so I'll give you examples of not just people and organizations that have woken up to today's Today, everybody's talking about environmental and social sustainability, and there's nobody who is not doing something about it, right? 
Whether they're doing it genuinely or not is a different question. Today, everybody's making noise about it. But let me tell you about two organizations that have been doing this for hundreds of years. Uh, I'll start with uh, Europe. The pencil maker Faber-Castell has had environmental and social sustainability at the core of their business strategy and culture for 267 years. In fact, right from the very beginning, they've had sustainability as a core competitive advantage. Back in the 1800s, they started providing employee benefits such as housing and health insurance a full 50 years before such things became the law in Germany. Now, they weren't doing this for charity. They were doing it with the principle that the more we take care of our employees, the more successful our business is going to be. So it was a, a beautiful win-win. And since then, whether it's environment or society, every successive leader of the company has had sustainability as a core competitive advantage. Okay, that's one. Let's turn to Asia, the Tata Group out of India. For 154 years, they have also had social and environmental sustainability in the core of everything that they do. Right when the founder, Jamshid Chitata, started the group, he said something to the tune of that, you know, the main purpose of business is to make society and human life better. Well, not his exact words, but something to that effect. I mean, that was in the inception. So when they built a steel plant in rural India, they didn't just build a steel plant. They built a whole town around it with schools, with hospitals, with parks, with mosques and temples and all kinds of things that normal human beings need. Again, why? Because then they would attract the best families and the best talent to come and work for them. And it was a win-win for everybody. The more they gave, the more they became successful. It's a $320 billion conglomerate. And that has been successful, profitable, right from the beginning by focusing on society and environment. I could go on with many more examples. Thank you very much. And you, you mentioned the, the notion of a competitive advantage using sustainability, not necessarily for altruistic or charitable reasons, but because it's good for business. Does there need to be a mindset shift by organizations to understand that this doesn't need to be a charitable, altruistically motivated shift? It's good for business. You're absolutely right. That mind shift is what is missing. You see, everybody today talks about sustainability, but people either see it as a cost, people either see it as a risk mitigation mechanism, and people see it as anything but opportunity. A few people understand that it's actually about opportunity. According to the World Economic Forum, climate change alone presents $10.1 trillion a year of new business opportunities for the next 30 years, every year. So very few people understand that you can look at this so-called threat as an opportunity. So either you're seeing a lot of greenwashing, or you're seeing window dressing, or you're seeing complete denial, or you're seeing box checking. Very few people are actually leading with sustainability, like the two examples that I gave you. Now, leadership is a fundamental part of what you do at Stewardship Asia, as I understand it. Do you want to touch slightly on that? And then I have some further questions on leadership. Sure. Uh, so uh, let me try and answer that with a question. Why, despite the fact that everybody's talking about sustainability these days, are we not seeing significant progress on either environmental or social issues? Why, despite the fact that there are almost $25 trillion in so-called ESG funds, are we not making meaningful impact on planetary impact? Because ESG and all of these frameworks are being pursued either as just checklists to remain on the right side of the law or just to window dress and look good. What's missing is the soul. What's missing is the spirit. And that is where we at Stewardship Asia say what's missing is steward leadership. 
A steward leader is somebody who sees themselves as a steward of planet Earth and humanity and sees opportunity for their business to do well by doing good. And that spirit of stewardship is what is missing. And therefore, seeing environmental and social sustainability from that leadership or rather steward leadership lens is the missing link, that mindset change that you talked about earlier that needs to happen. Is there a change generationally? Or perhaps that's oversimplifying it. But is there a sense that that steward leadership that you mentioned is evolving, is coming through? Well, uh, definitely there is enough data that now shows that the younger generations are expecting business leaders to behave more responsibly. There is even some research which suggests that if I have a choice as a consumer, I will pay a little bit extra for buying a product that is sourced uh, more sustainably. So it's their future that's at stake. And they're holding my generation responsible that, you know, you better not end my future before it even starts. So that's for sure. They are more concerned. Uh, are they more likely to take up uh, steward leadership? Absolutely. Well, some hope there. I mean, what does steward leadership look like in a, in a large multinational organization like Prudential? Very good. So again, the whole idea is to to find profitable solutions to today's problems. And those problems, again, being climate change, socioeconomic inequality, and cyber vulnerability, right? And so we're not against profit. Now, we have looked at about 100 companies around the world, like the two examples that I just gave you, and we tried to answer the question, why do they do it and how do they do it? So let me give you a quick overview of the two. The why is simply because they see themselves as stewards. They decided that they wanted to do it. Now, what does that look like in practice in a large organization? To come back to your question, three steps. The first step is to integrate four stewardship values within overall company values. And those four stewardship values are a strong belief in interdependence, that the more I give, the more I will be successful. Long-term view, that there may be some short-term cost, but in the long term, if we do the right thing, we are going to actually be more successful. Ownership mentality. I take ownership for today's problems and I take ownership and decide and choose to make money by doing good. And finally, the most important, creative resilience, which is to find profitable solutions to today's problems, you need innovation, innovation, innovation. And the thing with innovation is that you fail eight out of 10 times. So not only do you need creativity to drive innovation, you need resilience to never give up. So once you embed those four values into your culture, they cannot just be posters on the wall. They must be embedded in the culture that every employee lives them. That's step one. Step two is give yourself a stewardship purpose, which is to create a collective better future for stakeholders, society, future generations, and the environment, whatever that might be, right? For whichever business. And finally, step three is every decision the company makes, big or small, strategy, execution, hiring, firing, pricing, product mix, whatever, should go through the lens of this purpose and values, what we call the steward leadership compass. That's it. That's what steward leadership in practice looks like, those three steps. The third step is ongoing. I mean, that's fascinating. And it's easy to visualize an individual leader of an organization having all those values that you mentioned and acting out those values in, in the way that you described. But how do you cascade that down an organization? How do you make sure that there's leadership at every level following that belief system? So if you want 100% uh, sort of buy-in in a large organization that every single person that works in a 100,000 employee company is going to 100% buy-in, never going to happen. 
Okay, it's not realistic. However, what you need is a critical mass of people that actually buy into it and, and live those values and pursue that purpose. How to make that happen? There is only one way. It is for the top leaders to walk the talk, walk the talk, walk the talk and set the example. If the audio and the video doesn't match at the top, it's not going to trickle down. We human beings are hierarchical. Right from when we are little babies, we look up to authority to see what they're looking for. We try to please them so that we can get rewarded. That never changes throughout human life. There is no such thing as a flat organization. We always look up to authority for clues on how we should behave and how hence we will be rewarded. What was happening in Enron was they had posters on the wall with values like integrity, honesty, passion, this, that, and the other. But the, the video did not match the audio. It was saying, uh, make money at any cost, no matter what. So that's how you build that culture. And then you align your, your reward systems, your punishment systems, your promotion systems, your hiring systems, all to those values in the culture. That's how it's built. One last thing I'll say. If you find people who are in violation of the values, you have to get rid of them. And I think leads on to this next question, which, but why should employees care? Why should they see behavior from leadership teams and, and think that it's relevant to them as well? Well, we say that this generation of young people today, to them, meaning is more important than money. If the boomers were born or were growing up in the, in the West, in the post-depression West, or if you were growing up in the post-colonial East, the most important thing for my generation was financial stability at whatever cost. The current young generation was born with a silver spoon. They care more about meaning than money. They care more about purpose. And also their own future is at stake because if we don't save the planet, it is their future that we are mortgaging. So they care about this. And they want to work for an organization where they can align themselves to a worthy purpose. So that evidence is absolutely clear. Can anybody at any level within an organization be a steward leader, i.e. is leadership limited to those teams or can it be anyone? Oh, for sure. Depends on how you define leadership. We define steward leadership as the genuine desire and persistence to create a collective better future. Yeah, the genuine desire and persistence to create a collective better future for stakeholders, for society, for future generations, and for the environment. And if that genuine desire and persistence, anybody on any level can have. Now, will a culture of steward leadership take root if senior management is not genuine about it and is not driving from the top? The answer is no. So it has to be driven from the top if you want that culture. You know, the culture at Tata, the culture at Faber-Castell, the culture at Patagonia, the culture at Ayala, all these great companies is set from the top by the top leaders and with their role modeling, they're walking the talk. But can every employee be a steward leader? Oh, for sure. Fantastic. Thank you, Rajiv. What proactive steps can employees take within an organization other than following the leadership teams to take steps towards embracing sustainability? Well, they have to decide whether they at the individual level want to be steward leaders. Uh, a steward leader is somebody who believes in those four values personally, and gives themselves a personal purpose to make their life meaningful, right? Having a stewardship purpose, creating a collective better future, and see how they apply that in their work. So that's the first step you have to ask yourself, do I want to be a steward leader? And then if the answer is yes, to choose your employer carefully, where you can play out those values and that purpose. I'll give you an example, what employees can do at each level. I just met a, a business associate, a client of mine in Switzerland, also works for an insurance company. 
This particular insurance company actually has a very strong effort currently underway to control their carbon footprint. So one of the things they don't do easily is travel. Unless absolutely necessary, nobody is uh, required to travel, right? And COVID has taught us that we can do without travel. So he was telling me the story. I met him after a gap, first time since COVID. He says, I'm very excited. I've been invited by another company to go to the United States to uh, speak at a conference and share our story. I said, that's fantastic. Congratulations. He says, my boss has cleared the trip. I said, oh, fantastic. When are you going? He says, I'm not going. Then why are you not going? Because of the carbon footprint of the flight. And our, our company ethos right now is to save that carbon emission as much as possible. He said, then why did your boss approve it? My boss approved it because the other company is paying for it. So it's not going to be counted in our company's footprint. So boss says, go. It's good for us to have you this publicity, this limelight. He says, I, in spite of my boss approving it, I made the decision not to go because I absolutely relate to what our CEO is saying that this is not a gimmick. We do it for planet Earth. Now, that's what employees can do. Have their own steward leadership compass of values and purpose and make their own decisions. I guess the other thing is to say is that obviously these lessons aren't only applicable to the commercial corporate world. It seems there's a broader social relevance to those too. And governments and societies need to be and perhaps will inevitably adopt these philosophies. Absolutely. And we've just uh, you know, published a book called Sustainable Sustainability, Why ESG is Not Enough, to appeal to governments, to appeal to big corporations and small, and to appeal to even the nonprofit world that you know what's missing from the so-called sustainability movement right now, why are we not making considerable progress on either environmental or social, is that this kind of thinking is missing. The education is missing. The awareness is missing. And we need to instill this kind of culture in every organization, particularly in government organizations as well. So practically, how do you instill those belief systems? Yeah, so uh, education is a big part, is a big part. Waking up people to the point that it's not a zero-sum game, that doing something for planet Earth and humanity is not at the cost of profit, right? So education is a huge part. Then how do you practice toward leadership? Again, education is a huge part. So yes, by educating them, then by aligning your internal systems and structures that I mentioned earlier, your hiring, your promotion, your reward systems to the philosophy is the other. And the final thing, as I said, is it will only work if the board and senior management want it to work. If the desire and persistence at the top is not genuine, then what you will get is window dressing or greenwashing or something like that. See, the problem with the efforts that the world is making to address environmental and social sustainability today is that we are using two main tools, incentive and regulation. Yeah, we are either incentivizing people with cheap capital or with tax incentives to go green, or we are trying to drive the right behavior through regulation and reporting requirements. And we think that both of those are not enough. Why? Because you need innovation to solve for these challenges. And you cannot legislate innovation. Regulation is good. It minimizes harm, but it does not maximize good. To maximize good, you need innovation. And innovation is a leadership issue, not a governance issue. And incentives, over-measuring and over-incentivizing to drive behavior as a tool, we've known this time and time again that that drives bad behavior. Like, why did we find ourselves in that mess of the global financial crisis in 2008? Because of fouled up incentive and measurement systems. So, which is why what's missing is the spirit of steward leadership. That incentivization that you mentioned, that's presumably what triggers the whole 
concept of greenwashing and, and so on. Absolutely. Absolutely. They say what gets measured gets done. We say no. What gets measured gets misused. Rather, what gets done then gets measured and reported in a way that's convenient to me. That's brilliant. So how do you stimulate an environment where innovation occurs more broadly than just in one organization, perhaps? But how, how do we get that innovation? Well, again, you have to create conditions for innovation, right? One of the key elements of innovation is forgiveness. If you have zero tolerance for mistakes, you can say goodbye to innovation. So genuine mistakes need to be forgiven. That's number one. The other is to teach empathy. Empathy is a prerequisite for innovation. Unless I can walk a mile in the shoes of my customer or my client and understand and feel what they feel, I cannot innovate for them. Because, you know, giving the market what the market already knows they want is not innovation. That's playing catch up. Innovation is anticipating what the customer needs, which they even don't know that they need. Uh, and that requires deep empathy and a culture of forgiveness. How do you teach empathy? And I, <laughs> I say that as a parent. I think it's quite an important question. How do you show the value of empathy? How do you increase it? Role modeling is the only way I know it. I mean, you can put people into workshops and all that. Yes, that works. But at the end of the day, if you're working in an organization that is toxic, that says profit before everything else at, by whichever means possible, human beings understand that that's the side of their bread that is buttered and that's where they go. But if you work for an organization which has leaders that show empathy, by empathy does not mean weakness, then you're going to try to follow that. Fantastic. Thank you very much indeed. Rajiv, thank you very much for coming on Impact Live. My pleasure. Prudential. Prudential. Impact. Live. For every life. For every future.